Hello and welcome to the Hanseatic League, a podcast from the history of the Germans. Episode 15, Decline and Fall, Part 1. 1474 to 1531 was a time of immense change and upheaval for the Hanseatic League, and not just for them. The Habsburg Empire is bedded into being. England's War of the Roses is over. In the north, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth stretches all the way from Kiev to Gdansk. Columbus tries to sail to India, and Vasco da Gama actually sails to India. Luther nails his 95 theses on the doors of the churches of Wittenberg. All is in flux, and so is the Hanse, and Lübeck, its most important city. Well, is it still the most important city? What about Danzig and Hamburg, who take advantage of the shifting trade flows whilst Lübeck finds itself on the sidelines? Who do they blame? The Dutch and the Danes. Cometh the hour, cometh the man, and his name is Jürgen Wullenweaver, and he has all the solutions. Or does he? But before we start, let me do my ritual prostration before all of you who are supporting the show. To quote Steve Young, quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, in medieval times artists had patrons that supported them, and this is a similar thing. We're basically saying, wouldn't you like to be part of this? And here are four of you listeners who've already signed up on patreon.com slash history of the Germans because they wanted to be part of it. Walt B, Max B, Devry K.O. and Thomas N. Thanks to you all. Now last week we hurtled through the 15th century, a time often seen as the high point of Hanseatic power, wealth and influence. The cities may stand like victorious prize fighters over the crumbled bodies of their opponents, but what few can see is that the contest has taken its toll. Many of the inner organs are damaged. The flow of goods and money had shifted from the land route between Lübeck and Hamburg to the sea route around the Jutland Peninsula. And as a consequence, the interests of the Livonian and the Prussian cities had begun to deviate from those of the Wendish ones, in particular from those of Lübeck. Lübeck still held the upper hand within the Hanse organization, not because it was some sort of capital or head of the Hanse, but thanks to its role as a general secretary, who sets the agenda for the Hanseatic diets. During the 15th century, the frictions could be glossed over with feats of naval warfare and a huge dose of potluck. But we're now entering the 16th century and this is a very different kettle of fish. The 16th century is the time when Europe changes fundamentally, politically, socially, culturally and spiritually. In 1477, Maximilian of the House of Habsburg married Mary, heiress to the Duchy of Burgundy and the County of Flanders. In 1496, their son, Philip the Fair, married Johanna of Castile, the sole daughter and heiress of the kingdoms of Aragon and Castile, Spain to you and me. Within just a few decades, a pan-European empire had emerged that combined the wealth of the New World with some of the richest lands in northern Europe and held the imperial title to boot. The Kingdom of France, too, is on a roll. First, they take back the Duchy of Burgundy that Maximilian had struggled to hold on to. Then, the marriage with Anne de Bretagne brings this once independent duchy into the kingdom. Provence and the south of France get integrated in 1480, when René, the last of the Anjous, had died. In 1485, 
August 22nd to be precise, Richard III loses the Battle of Bosworth Fields, bringing an end to the War of the Roses. From that time until the British Civil War that starts in 1639, the country, or now countries, are largely at peace. Conflicts are either minor or short-lived, allowing the king, parliament and the people to focus on the useful things. Like building a commercial empire. The Muscovy Company was founded in 1555 by royal charter, giving some English merchants the monopoly to trade with what was to become Russia. In 1592 we get the Levant Company and by the very end of that century the British East India Company. What few in Western Europe remember today was another great dynastic marriage. The marriage in 1386 between Jadwiga, heiress to the Kingdom of Poland, to the Grand Duke of Lithuania, who changed his name from the pagan Jogaila to Ladislav Jagiello. This was the beginning of the personal union between Poland and Lithuania that resulted in something called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in 1559. And this political entity would grow and grow until in 1619 it stretched all the way from Ukraine to the Baltic States and from Smolensk to Krakow. Another future world power too was stirring in that period. Ivan III, ruler of a rather modest principality that used to pay tributes to the Mongol Khans, expanded far and wide, laying the foundations of what after some exceedingly bloody convulsions turn into Russia. The Margraves of Brandenburg, we had not yet mentioned for a while, they too got busy. Well, first they got busy dying out. In 1320, the last of the Ascania Margraves, the descendants of Albrecht the Bear, had died without offspring. The territory first went to the House of Wittelsbach, who made a right old mess of it, and in 1374 it came to the then reigning imperial family, the Luxembourgers. They too had a bit of a tough time with it, so the whole thing was handed over to Frederick of Hohenzollern, the Burggraf of Nuremberg. He came in initially as some sort of governor, but proved to be so successful that by 1415 he became the actual Margraf. And despite the poverty and the chaos of the Mark, this was an important role, because the Margraviate was one of the seven electors who chose the emperor. Frederick and his successors proved to be proactive and smart rulers, who leveraged their status as electors and the meagre resources they had inherited into an expanding state that gradually reached out for the Baltic Sea. And then there are the most important neighbours of the Hanse, the kingdoms of Denmark, Sweden and Norway. These three kingdoms had come together, thanks to the efforts of Margaret of Denmark, into the Kalmar Union. And that union established that all three kingdoms are to be ruled in personal union by one monarch. And that monarch was Eric of Pomerania, initially solely as a tool of Margaret, but when she had died in 1412, on his own. And as we heard last week, this ended into a bit of a disaster, and Eric was expelled in 1439, ending his days in the tiny duchy of Pomerania Rügenwalde. After that, the Kalmar Union did not vanish, though. An imperial prince, Christopher of Bavaria, became king of all three kingdoms, but the Swedes had established a much stronger autonomy for themselves. No longer were they obliged to bear Danish soldiers or officers on their territory and their obligations to fund Danish wars was much reduced. Now, let's leave this here. We will look at the next steps in this story towards the end of this episode.
Whilst these new or enlarged entities were growing in strength and importance, the longtime ally of the Hanse, the Teutonic Knights, went downhill. The latter, without telling too much of what we'll discuss next season, had become a shadow of their former selves after the Battle of Tannenberg in 1410. Their new neighbor, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, gradually picks them bare until only East Prussia and Livonia is left. The former ends up as part of the Margraviate of Brandenburg and gives its name, Prussia, to the new state. The Livonian possessions of the Knights come under pressure from Russia and Sweden are ultimately reduced to the tiny duchy of Kurland. Now these new powers had little tolerance for city freedoms. One of their main objectives was to consolidate power within their kingdoms or principalities, and that meant to end the perennial feuding between their subjects and between the subjects and themselves. To bring those to an end, they had to break the power of all intermediaries, be that the knights, the counts, or the cities. What they could not tolerate in particular was that anyone in their lands engaged in their own foreign policy. And that meant by extension that they could not tolerate their cities to engage in the Hanse as a political project. They could probably have tolerated it when the Hanse was just standardizing trading and organizing a reliable system of judicial redress. But they took a very dim view of Hanseatic wars against other princes, princes they may have friendly relationships with. Cities therefore came under increased pressure from the princes to limit their involvement with the League. The Brandenburger Margraves were at the forefront here. They had several Hanse cities in their territory, including the two interconnected cities of Berlin and Köln. Yes, that is Berlin as in the capital of Germany, but not Köln as in Cologne, the city on the Rhine. We are in episode 123, and this is the first time this place gets talked about properly. And that tells you something about the difference between Germany and, say, France, England or Italy. No history of these countries could get to the 16th century without extensively talking about Paris, London and obviously Rome. Germany's capital remained in the shadows for a very long time. It was founded late and in two steps. In 1251 there was a city called Berlin, located on the right bank of the Spree River around the Church of St. Nikolai. Its twin city was Köln, founded probably 10 years later on the Spree Island, which we today call the Museum Island. This dual city was a member of the Hanseatic League and, like other Hanseatic cities, enjoyed a lot of autonomy within the Margraviate. They elected their own council and they had their own city laws. How economically significant the two cities were is still somewhat in dispute. If you go around the Quain Nikolai Viertel today, you may conclude that they weren't particularly successful. Historians disagree and place Berlin-Köln amongst the mid-range of Hanseatic cities. In 1440, Frederick of Hohenzollern, that's the guy who's just been put in charge of the Margraviate, as part of his consolidation drive decides to force the city into submission. He initiated the construction of a castle that was to dominate the bridge between the two cities. The citizens obviously did not like that and revolted, in 1448, they flooded the construction site. Finally, after heavy negotiations and probably the exchange of some bullets, a compromise was found and Berlin-Köln agreed to leave the Hanse. The castle was built and later became the Stadtschloss, the primary residence of the Margraves, 
later the kings in and then off Prussia, and finally the German Kaisers. Most of it was destroyed in the Second World War and East Germans replaced it with the Palast der Republik, which the post-reunification government then decided to demolish, and now, in a truly astounding development, it has been replaced with a reconstruction of the former residence of Kaiser Bill. The submission of Berlin, Köln to its Markgraph encouraged more and more princes, in particular those in Westphalia and Saxony, to go after the city's autonomy in their lands. Gradually, only the largest and the most powerful cities could retain the freedom to set their own policies and follow through with the decisions of the Hanseatic Diets. In the end, the Hansa had to establish different tiers of cities, excluding some from participation in confidential discussions, because they simply could not be trusted to keep the information from their overlord. If the Hansa did not have enough problems with strengthening powers on their doorstep, state-sponsored capitalism in England and Holland, and the princes nibbling away at the membership list, there was also the most significant development of the 16th century to consider, the Reformation. The Reformation kicked off in 1517 when Luther nailed his 95 theses on the doors of the palace chapel at Wittenberg, as well as several other churches in the town. Luther was excommunicated four years later in 1521 and cited to the Diet of Worms a year later, 1522. Events accelerated from there. Johannes Bugenhagen was one of the most important figures in the Reformation of Northern Germany and Denmark. Bugenhagen had joined Luther in Wittenberg in 1521 and had become his parish priest and confessor. In 1533 he became one of the first Protestant doctors of theology and was an important preacher and practitioner of biblical interpretation. But aside from that, he was also a great organizer. He set up the Lutheran churches in Brunswick in 1528, in Hamburg in 1529, in Lübeck in 1531, in Pomerania in 1535 and in Denmark in 1537. Little shows the speed with which the Reformation spread across the German-speaking world, particularly in the north, and the conversion of the Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights, Albrecht von Brandenburg, to Protestantism in 1525. That's just eight years after a minor theologian in a smallish university city in Germany had written up his thoughts and publicized them to his fellow academics. That gets us to events in Lübeck itself. There too, the news of the Reformation and the events at the Diet of Worms spread like wildfire. The Petition Council was opposed to what they called the Lutheran heresy. They feared repercussions from Emperor Charles V, who, after all, ruled the Low Countries, one of the most important export markets for the Hanse. And there were simply conservatives, who did not want to upset the existing order an order under which many of their relatives enjoyed ecclesiastical honours and incomes. The council banned Luther's writing, introduced penalties for anyone who possessed any of his books, and expelled two Lutheran preachers. But by 1531 the council crashed again into its perennial problem. They were running out of money. And again, they had to call a committee of this time 64 non-patricians. Those were partially artisans, but also upper-middle-class, merchants, shippers and other professionals. The Committee of 64 quickly moved beyond matters of taxation and demanded the return of the expelled Protestant vicars and the right to preach the gospel in all the churches of the city. 
From there, it took only a few months before Bugenhagen arrived and the city became Protestant. Church property was confiscated and the monasteries were dissolved. The committee ordered the churches to be stripped of all its popish frills, yielding a cool 48 tons of gold and silver for the city treasury. Bugenhagen also created a new constitution for the city, which limited the power of the council. From now on, any alliances, ordinances or borrowing by the council required the consent of the Committee of 64, as well as that of another committee of 100 formed by representatives of the parishes. So by 1531, Lübeck was a fully Protestant city, and the city joined the small Caldic League, the military alliance of Protestant princes and cities established to protect each other against the backlash from Emperor Charles V. So for the Hanse as a whole, the Reformation caused some serious problems. Whilst some very important member cities like Lübeck, Wismar, Rostock and Brunswick had embraced the Reformation, some, like Cologne, did not want to, and others again were restrained by their Catholic overlords. For instance, Danzig, which was now part of Catholic Poland-Lithuania. If the political situation was already precarious, with territorial princes encroaching onto the Hanse world, and the Reformation undermining solidarity of the cities, their economic position was also threatened. In 1492, an Italian navigator in the pay of Ferdinand and Isabella of the newly formed Kingdom of Spain had discovered what he believed was a sea route to India. The discovery of the Americas was one of the reasons that trade shifted towards the Atlantic ports. The other, arguably commercially more important one, was the discovery of an actual route to India, via the Cave of Good Hope, by Portuguese navigators. These events did create a whole new set of trading routes that partially replaced existing channels and brought previously unknown goods onto European tables, leaving aside the avalanche of precious metal that created wave upon wave of inflation. Now, the Hanse as an organization did not directly participate in these new trade routes but they still benefited from the huge amount of wealth that was created. The growing cities of not just Amsterdam and London, but also smaller ones like Bordeaux, Nantes, Rouen, Bristol, demanded grain and beer as well as vast amounts of wood to build their ships. The volume of trade of the Hanseatic cities kept growing strongly all throughout the 16th century. So whilst the shift in global trade did not negatively affect the Hanse as a whole, it did impact the relative importance of certain Hanse members. Danzig became the main export harbour for grain and wood to the Low Countries, France, England and at times Spain and Portugal. Hamburg and Bremen located on the North Sea were closer to where the action was and became larger, richer and more important. Lübeck, on the other hand, declined, not in absolute but in relative terms. They were in the wrong place and they had the wrong products. Since the end of the 15th century, the copper that was brought into Lübeck from Sweden faced competition from the copper king of Europe, Jakob Fugger. Jakob Fugger was a merchant and banker from Augsburg who made his fortune by lending to the perennially skinned Emperor Maximilian a relationship he levered into a pan-European commercial empire nobody had seen before. Some people claim that Jakob Fugger was the richest man who ever lived though he has some serious competitors, including Mansa Musa, Marcus Licinius Crassus or John D. Rockefeller. But a place in the top ten is probably a fair assumption, and he was definitely the richest man the Holy Roman Empire had ever produced. And Jakob Fugger spread his tentacles deep into the Hanseatic world, 
showing up in Lübeck in 1494 and a few years later in Livonia, trading not just in copper but in all and everything the Hanse had believed to have had a monopoly in. The appearance of the Fuggers was a bit like the arrival of Amazon in the world of general retail. His business model was that of a modern corporation, with branches, double bookkeeping, huge financial firepower and close links to government. And facing him were mid-sized Hansards with shoddy accounting and reliant of a network of friends and relatives. So the Hanse retaliated with good old-fashioned piracy. They seized several Fugger ships and refused to hand them back. Jakob Fugger was a formidable opponent who could mobilize not just vast amounts of money but also the emperor himself, if that was in his interest. Now the copper issue and the antagonism with Jakob Fugger was a challenge but not the only one. Salted herring and stockfish, two of Lübeck's mainstays were already less in demand in the Protestant world that scrapped all those 140 fast days where one could only eat fish, alligator and beaver. The same could be said of beeswax, which again was not as much in demand in Protestant rites as it is in Catholic ones. And that comes on top of the dwindling stock of herring in the Baltic and the attempts of the other Hansards and the Dutch to bypass the Lübeck-dominated contour of Bergen. And then there's another important lack to its economy, the link between the Baltic and the North Sea via Hamburg. And as we heard last week, the trade in grain and wood was moving more and more onto the route via the Öresund and the Kattegat into the North Sea. As shipbuilding and navigation skills advanced, this once dangerous trajectory had become manageable and much cheaper than the land and river route that had allowed Lübeck to flourish. This route via the Öresund was used not just by the Hanseatic traders from Livonia or Prussia, but also by the merchant adventurers from England, Scotland and Holland. Their trade had grown for quite a while now. The English merchants were still hampered by an imbalance in their trading privileges. In 1474, the then King of England, Edward IV, had agreed that the Hanse could retain its vast privileges in the steelyard in London. But the Hanse in return did not have to grant similar privileges to the Englishmen who wished to sail into the Baltic. The Dutch were in a different position. They had much less impediments to deal with. Some had initially actually been members of the Hanse, including Amsterdam, but by now they were outside the association. What they had instead was an enormous export market for Hanse products. And this market was not just the Low Countries themselves, but all of Western Europe that traded first through Antwerp and then later through Amsterdam. Many a merchant was tempted to give up solidarity to his fellow Hansards in exchange for a good relationship with such important customers. And I think it's fair to say that neither the English nor the Dutch constituted a mortal danger for the cities in the Hanseatic League. As we will see, cities like Hamburg and Danzig benefited enormously from the cooperation with the foreigners, but that is not how the population of Lübeck, in particular their lower classes, saw it. They were convinced that all the relative decline was down to the pesky Dutchmen who kept supplying the Danes in the regular conflicts the city had with its neighbour to the north. It was just simpler to blame it all on the Dutch and the Danes because the problems with the Fuggers, the Herring, the Bergen Contour, the Reformation, the princely oppression, all that was complex. The Dutch and the Danes? That's pretty simple. Everybody can understand that. And cometh the hour, cometh the man, as your run-of-the-mill cricket pundit would say, and that man was Jürgen Wollenweber and his sidekick, Marx Meyer. 
Wollenweber managed to weave all these strains together into one near-unbreakable pike he pointed at Denmark, only to find himself and all the ambitions of his adopted hometown kebabbed on it. Jürgen Wollenweber came from a successful family of merchants who'd settled in Hamburg. He was probably born in 1488. We know little about his career apart from the fact that he moved to Lübeck in 1526 and became a citizen there in 1531. Now we do not hear much about his commercial successes, which suggests there weren't many, even though his family was actually growing in prominence in Hamburg. Now, this lack of success may well have fueled his disapproval of the patricians on the council. And as we mentioned before, the years 1526-31 to 31 is when Lübeck converts to Protestantism. Wollenweber and his family in Hamburg had wholeheartedly embraced the reforms Martin Luther proposed. And because of his sincere conviction and a substantial dose of demagoguery, Wollenweber became a key figure in this transition. He joined the Committee of 64 that represented the artisans and the lesser merchants who were staunchly Protestant, forcing the city to change course. And Wollenweber's moment came when the new constitution that Bugenhagen had drafted is announced. Immediately afterwards, two patrician burgomeisters leave the city, and they are followed within a week by the majority of the old city council. And, similar as it happened in 1408, the council is then replenished with members of the Committee of 64. And this time the difference is that all these new members are in one way or another beholden to Jürgen Wollenweber. The trader of modest success had managed to become the undisputed dictator of the empire's second city within just five years of arriving at the city gates. And two years later his position was confirmed when he was elected as Bürgermeister. Now Pope Leo X, the one who excommunicated Martin Luther, had famously written to his brother Giuliano on the day that he was elected, God gave us the papacy, now let us enjoy it. Not sure how much Pope Leo X actually enjoyed it in the end, but in any event, by 1531, that's just 18 years later, such a sentiment was definitely no longer appropriate. Wollenweber did not see himself as a dictator who could now enjoy the fruits of his scheming. He believed that he had to enact the will of the people, and the will of the people was to get rid of the Dutch and to hit out at the Danes, because it was the Danes and the Dutch that were responsible for everything that has gone wrong. And all that boils down to one specific policy objective, and that was to compel the King of Denmark to close the Öresund to all Dutch shipping. And he believed he was in a good position to get this done, because for the umpteenth time, Denmark and with it the Kalmar Union were in a succession crisis. Two competing Danish kings were slugging it out, Frederick I and Christian II. Now, Wollenweber's plan was to offer the support of the city of Lübeck to Frederick I in exchange for a complete closure of the Öresund. That sounds sensible, but to understand what it really meant, we have to go back to 1448. Because in 1448, King Christopher of Bavaria had died. Christopher was, if you remember, that imperial prince from the Palatinate who was plucked out of a hat by the Danish royal council to become king instead of that hapless Eric of Pomerania. The intended successor of Christopher was another German prince, Christian of Oldenburg. That is Oldenburg in Oldenburg, not Oldenburg in Holstein. 
Christian was one of those guys who had won the inheritance lottery. From his father he had inherited the county of Oldenburg, somewhat of a backwater in Frisia, surrounded by floodplains and tribal chieftains. So don't get me wrong, I love Oldenburg and even lived there for a period. But I would not have wanted to live there in the 15th century. Nor did our friend Christian. He instead grew up at the court of his uncle, Adolphus, the Count of Holstein and Duke of Schleswig. And that uncle was childless, which may have been a good reason for little Christian to be extra special nice to him. And Christian was extra special nice to him, and his uncle made him the heir to Holstein and Schleswig. And when King Christopher of Denmark, Sweden and Norway died in 1448, the Danish royal council again looked round for a suitable prince to become the new king. Denmark, as you know by now, was an elective monarchy, and in the absence of a natural heir, the royal council was pretty much free to choose whoever they liked. The one they liked was Adolphus of Holstein, partially because he was the most important noble in the region, and secondly, because he would bring Schleswig-Holstein to the Danish crown. Now Adolphus turned him down, citing old age, but then put forward his nephew and heir, Christian of Oldenburg. Only condition he had to marry the previous king's wife, Dorothea of Brandenburg. With that, Christian, son of an obscure count from the foggy North Sea shore, became king of Denmark. That was great. But he also wanted to be king of Sweden and king of Norway, like his predecessor. But the Swedes are now fed up with Danish kings, who aren't really Danes but in fact German princes and they're picked out of a hat by the Danish royal council. So the Swedes elect one of their own, Karl Knudson, as King Charles VIII. Because anything the Danes can do, the Swedes can do better. Karl was an important noble and during his term as head of the Swedish royal council had become a very wealthy landowner. And in this role he had ruled Sweden pretty much as an independent kingdom, even at a time when King Christopher had still been alive. So crowning him in 1448 was just a natural progression in Sweden's exit from the Kalmar Union. Now Christian and Charles would then fight it out. First over who would get the third kingdom, Norway. Now Charles won this one. But in 1457 Charles loses support in Sweden and gets deposed, at which point Christian takes over, but then in 1464 Charles is back. In 1470, Charles dies, and the Kingdom of Sweden is then ruled by Charles' nephew, Sten Sture, who defeats the Danes in 1471. Sten Sture does not crown himself king, and instead the Kingdom of Sweden is now ruled by various protectors of the realm, occasionally interspersed with brief periods when the Danes force their way into Stockholm. Meanwhile in Denmark itself, the family of Christian of Oldenburg rules. Christian's son John takes over in 1481. Apart from his fight over Norway and Sweden, John's main focus was to strengthen Denmark commercially and militarily. He supported Danish merchants in their competition with the Hansards and built a navy, partially to use against the Swedes but also to counterbalance the power of the Hanse. John died in 1513 after a long and ultimately fairly fruitful reign. He might not have been able to suppress the Swedes and even suffered a defeat by the peasant Republic of Dietmarschen, but overall, his rule materially improved the economic position of Denmark and strengthened the royal position by suppressing the power of the rebellious nobles. John had a son, Christian II, who takes over in 1513. Now Christian II continued his father's domestic policies, 
supporting the commoners against the nobility. But what he became famous for, though, was his brutality. Even before he succeeded his father, he had become viceroy in Norway and was considered tyrannical in his attempts to reduce the power of the local nobility. And once king, he made a large-scale attempt to regain Sweden. He was supported in this effort by his brother-in-law, the Emperor Charles V, and then by Pope Leo X and Jakob Fugger. Christian II had remained Catholic, whilst the current Swedish protector of the realm, Sten Sture the Younger, and his privy council were leaning towards Protestantism. And that explains the support from the Pope and the Emperor. Jakob Fugger, who funded a big chunk of the war cost, was after the great copper mine at Falun Grove. That in turn explains the involvement of the Hanse in this war. Because the Hanse, and Lübeck in particular, did not want to let the copper mines fall into the hands of the Fugger. It was one of the most important businesses the Lübeck had. And if that meant war with Denmark, well, then it was war with Denmark. In 1520, Christian II and his army of mercenaries from France, Germany and Scotland, paid for by the Fuggers, take Stockholm. On November 4, 1520, Christian II is crowned King of Sweden. Three days later, he organizes a party at the palace and by the stroke of midnight, soldiers enter the Great Hall and arrest several of the guests. A prescription list is produced by the Archbishop of Uppsala that includes all the opponents of Danish rule in Sweden and even some who were supportive of the Kalmar Union but happened to be enemies of that archbishop. The day after, November 8th, a court, headed up by the same archbishop, convicts all 82 accused, including two fellow bishops, of heresy. The next morning, they are all led out to the Grand Square before the palace and beheaded or hanged. Now one of the executed was Erik Johannes Vasa. His son, Gustav Vasa, swears revenge and within days Sweden is ablaze with war. Vasa inflicts a first major defeat on the Danes in April of the following year, and the Hanse, namely Lübeck, joins Gustav Vasa's effort in 1522, and by June 1523 Christian II had to withdraw completely. Sweden was free, and its king owed the city on the Trava River for their support. So when Christian II then returned to Denmark, defeated and broke, the royal Danish councillor was not best pleased. Also, the Reformation was gradually taking hold in Denmark, making Christian II, who opposed it, even more unpopular. So what needed to happen happened fast. Christian II was deposed and his uncle Frederick I became king instead. Christian wasn't killed, he was just sent into exile in Holland, where his brother-in-law, Charles V, was the ruler. Frederick I is now king of Denmark. He was a more measured man than his nephew. Though he remained Roman Catholic, he allowed the Lutherans to preach in his kingdom and he encouraged the publication of the first Danish translation of the Bible. And he continued his predecessor's policies of supporting economic growth and a build-out of the navy. Now in 1531, that old King Christian II, the one that's been exiled, the one that had murdered everybody in Stockholm, tried to come back. And again he did that with the help from his brother-in-law the Emperor Charles V, and from some pesky Dutch merchants. He mustered an army and he landed in Norway. Now the stage is set. And this is the same year Jürgen Wollenweaver becomes the de facto ruler of Lübeck. And Jürgen Wollenweaver is obsessed with two things. 
getting rid of the Dutch and the Reformation. And he believes that Christian II's landing in Norway is the great opportunity for Lübeck to regain its control of the Baltic Sea, to push out the Dutch and to advance the Reformation. His idea is that the Hanse, led by the city of Lübeck, should support Frederick I. In exchange, Frederick would close the Öresund to Dutch shipping for good. And Gustav Vasa, who still owed them for the support in the Swedish War of Independence, would do the same. The Hanse monopoly over the Baltic trade would be recovered. Protestantism would flourish. Everything will be great. But will it? Well, that we'll find out next week. And I hope you'll join us again. And as usual, I would like to thank my wonderful patrons who signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com slash support. Your help is really, really appreciated.